This morning, continuing in Amos chapter 2, looking at verses 6 through 12, yet it was I. Here as we began in the book of Amos, we have read about that which Amos saw. In Amos chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake, the message that came to Amos was not simply a message that Amos heard. It was a message that he saw, a word that came to him as a Person, the very word of the Lord, the expression of his character. And what did Amos see? What Amos saw of the Lord was the Lord himself roaring forth from Zion. In chapter 1 and verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers when the Lord roars there is a duality of effect the children of God come trembling but the wicked harden their hearts in rebellion and when that hardness comes the result is that the Lord will send fire he will send fire upon Syria and Philistia upon Tyre and Edom upon Ammon and Moab for there is none righteous no not one and as we saw last week this extends even unto Judah, for they believe the most dangerous of lies. They replace the truth of God himself with a lie, and they trusted in their own strength, and in doing so, they fell into the madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth that was directly in front of their face. As Jeremiah would later say in chapter 2 and verses 11 through 13, has a nation changed its gods? even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In the madness, not of their minds, but of their hearts, they abandoned first the fountain of living water that is God himself, and instead replaced him with something of their own making. Cisterns, broken cisterns, they hewn out, which could hold no water. And where Judah is bad, The northern kingdom of Israel is worse. For they did not replace the truth of God piecemeal so that God's truth might be slowly eroded before their eyes. But instead, they remade him entirely in their own image and after their own likeness. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26 through 28, it speaks of the sin of Jeroboam to which all of Amos is tied. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
the reality of the God of heaven did not fit with what Jeroboam believed he needed in God. And so he created a God that fit the desires of his heart and was bent towards his purpose. Centuries later, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus would say to a young man that came seeking his favor, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And when Jeroboam removed the truth of the only God from the midst of the people of Israel, at that moment in time, there was a predetermined way that it must come to its conclusion. If there is only one that is good and it is God alone, when that God is removed from amongst the people, from amongst the society and the culture, from the very midst of the kingdom itself, when that one standard of righteousness is removed, then apart from God there is no righteousness. And apart from righteousness and its standard, the only thing that is left to happen is for the increase of wickedness which always results in the fall of judgment. And indeed, because they replaced the truth of God with a lie, judgment would fall. In Amos chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, we continue this morning. I'm going to read the whole thing. We're going to go back and we're going to break it down. Three parts. For thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. When the righteous standard of God himself, not simply his rules, not simply his law, but from the standard of righteousness that is the person of God himself is removed from in the midst of the people, there is only one thing that will happen. Wickedness will increase and judgment will fall. And indeed, upon Israel, that judgment has come. Here we see the manifestation of Israel's sin. 
In Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He goes on in teaching similar to this and tells us things like it is not what a man puts into his mouth that makes him unclean, but the things that are in his heart that then come out of his mouth that makes him unclean. As we saw last week and have seen over the courses of months and years, even through the books of Romans and the Gospel of John and the first five chapters of Acts, the reality is, is when it comes to mankind, it is the heart that commands the ship. And the mind that figures out how to get the desires of the heart. The problem with men is not primarily the things they do, it's the things they want. And out of that desire, go forth doing. Sin comes from the heart. It has a singular source, but it has many manifestations. It can show itself in a million ways. And here, at the beginning of the indictment against Israel in the book of Amos, is the big three that, though being added to, will be a continual refrain that occurs throughout the rest of the book. Here we see the faithlessness of Israel in the manifestation of their heart as they sin before God. In Amos chapter 2, verse 6, For thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Oppression. For the prophets... They see no justice in Israel. As a matter of fact, the only standard is that of power. It is a culture in which there are two sets of rules for the haves and the have-nots. And those that have being dissatisfied with even so much that God would give them, they use the position they have to take away from and harm their neighbor. Isaiah speaks of them like this in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Those that have one standard of justice for themselves and for their cronies and another set of justice for those that can't do anything about it. And the Lord had said specifically to this people Israel, when he called them aside, when he pulled them out as his chosen people and called them by name, he told them it was not to be this way amongst them. That being his people and being set apart as holy into the expression of his character, that because God was not this way and because he showed no partiality but gave even justice to all according to his character, so should the people of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 25, in verse 35 through 43, in Leviticus 25, the Lord says this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. 
You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him food, or give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now, guys, there's a very specific implication there. And what the Lord is saying is, is the only reason that you are not destitute slaves in Egypt is because of my provision for you. And so when you see one of your own brothers who falls under this same provision in dire straits, don't make a profit off of him because of his misfortune, but instead love him and help him. He continues in verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. In other words, man, if your brother's in trouble and needs help and you're able to do it, give him a job. Man, nothing like honest work. Give him a job. He shall serve you. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his father's. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Now when we looked at the nations that were surrounding Israel, you notice the the constant refrain of condemnation that comes for those particularly that had sold the people of Israel into slavery in Edom. Now we see why he is particularly concerned with them. He says, look, man, I didn't spend my glory to free this people from slavery that they may in turn be enslaved to themselves. They're not yours. They're mine, the Lord says. And I'm jealous over them. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. And yet, in Israel, that was exactly what was going on. All the way down to the children of the prophets themselves. In first or in Second Kings chapter four, verses one through seven, there is a narrative recorded concerning Elisha and the widow and children of one of the prophets that has recently passed away. And in verse one it says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. And then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all of these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. 
And so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God. And he said, go and sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. I want you to consider the content of the character, the the cultural character that was existent in Israel in the days of Elisha, that the widow of one of the prophets, a devout man of God, would have to fear for the enslavement of her sons over a debt that can be paid off with extra from a humble cottage full of oil. It's not like her debt was the king's ransom. I understand olive oil was more valuable then than it is now. You didn't have these gigantic groves that were tended by machinery and you didn't have hydraulic presses to get it and all that kind of stuff. I understand it was more valuable than it is now. It was also one of the most common commodities in the land. People had it. And if you go and you look at the ruins that are left in these places and what these people lived in, they lived in stuff that some of you have bathrooms that are bigger than. And whatever debt she owed in this little humble home with her and her two boys in there and the door closed behind them and however many jars you could put in there, this woman was able to pay her debt off and have extra and they were going to enslave these children for that? They crush the poor. There is no justice for the afflicted. It rages against the holy standard of God's character and justice. But that's not all they do. Like their neighbors around them, they have fallen into sexual depravity as well. In verse 7, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Well, it's not just Amos. Ezekiel speaks of the depravity that had taken hold of the people of God in chapter 22 and verses 8 through 9 where it says, You have despised my holy things. Now, before we get into kind of a legalistic list of do's and don'ts, because guys, if I can be honest with you, I know when I was a kid um, from the pulpit and, and in youth group and in Sunday school, that's typically the way these kind of issues were approached. And I think for most of you, that was probably the same. We've kind of got this list of here's what you do, here's what you don't do, and God loves one and hates the other. All of that is correct. There's nothing that's incorrect about that. The problem is, is for in my experience at least, and most people that I talked to, that was kind of where it stopped. And so we understood that there was stuff that God loved and God hated, And you should do the things that God loves and not the things that God hates. But there was never any real explanation given for why his soul was so bent against what he hated and so joyous in that which he loved. And I think that we have shortchanged a lot of people in that because 
legalism will never be the answer, but desire for the good and righteous and holy will always be the answer over desire for the depraved and the fallen. You have despised my holy things. The Lord says, man, I've got some stuff that's set apart, that's special, that's different. And you've despised those things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. So there is some manner in which committing lewdness in the midst of the people, in the midst of the culture, in the kingdom, is the people of God despising His holy things. So how do we understand that? There's a general principle that arches over the top of Scripture that the Lord has seen fit in this creation to set holy spiritual realities in fleshly vessels. That God has chosen, hey, look, man, this is a mortal coil and it is passing away. Amen? Amen. Man, from dust you came and from dust you shall return. That being said, this is not insignificant. This is significant. Significant enough that one of these days the Lord will raise it up perfected for eternity. He's redeeming it just like he redeemed your spirit. Just like he redeemed your heart. Just like he redeemed your mind. As a matter of fact, when we look at the souls underneath the altar in, in the Revelation, buddy, they are not satisfied until the day of the resurrection of the flesh has come. It's just dirt. But it's significant dirt. God has seen fit to set eternal spiritual realities in this dirt. The easiest one to look at would be the nature of our life. You know, in Leviticus, the Lord says that the reason that the blood is to be set aside and considered as holy is because God chose to take the eternal spiritual reality of our individual lives and somehow seat that physically in our blood here on earth. It reads like this in Leviticus chapter 17. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you eats the, any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and will cut him off from among his people. Now, this is what I mean when I say, okay, there's stuff God loves, there's stuff God hates. All of that's true. It's not enough to stop there. So here it is. God hates you eating blood. He says, don't do it. If you do, I'm going to cut you off from among, amongst the people of Israel. If you stop there... That's not sufficient. You have to know why. Otherwise, it's just legalism, and all it's going to do is make you a better sinner. That's all it's going to do. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Man, you look at this whole blood sacrifice system that we see in the Old Testament, and you're like, why is God so big on blood? Here's why. Because it's not about platelets and plasma. In some way, a holy God has chosen to seat a holy and eternal reality that is human life into the blood. He's chosen to seat the temporal reality that is animal life into their blood. And because the life comes only from him, literally, according to John chapter 1, flows from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, then by golly, that's his, and you don't get to toy with it. 
Why did he decide to seed it in the blood? I don't have a clue. You'll have to ask him. But he did. There are spiritual realities that are seated in physical things, and so too is the case with sexual intimacy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 through 17, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. It's not just life. What the people of Israel were doing was they used that which God seated in the flesh in order to give testimony to Jesus Christ in his church. They used that very thing instead to proclaim a lie about the character of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, you guys know it, verse 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God seated the life and the blood. God chose to use the marriage bed to be that seat in which Christ and the church would be proclaimed in a very physical manner to all of the world around them. It's more than that. It's the way that a wife is submissive to her husband and the way that a husband loves his wife. It's the whole package. And they took this thing that is the very physical seed of a very spiritual reality that is designed by God to proclaim the excellencies of his gospel and they used it to lie about him. They have become faithless. Ezekiel 22, continuing in verse 11. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes and they shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. Me, you have forgotten. You see, that's why it's so critical to know the why behind what God loves and what God hates. Because what we see is, is that when we take this thing that God loves and He says, the reason that I love it is because it declares all this great stuff about me. And you take that. And by the force of your own will, use it to declare something that is completely the opposite of his character. It rightfully makes him livid. You don't take his precious things. You don't take his holy things. You don't take the things that he has set apart and use them in direct contradiction to his will and his glory. Or you can bet that wrath will fall. But it wasn't just the oppression of the poor for the gain of the strong. It wasn't just sexual immorality. It obviously extended through those things. They actually took both, the oppression of the poor 
and the sexual immorality, wadded them up in one ball. This is one of the reasons we say this is Romans chapter 1, man. You know what the law does alone, apart from empowering grace? The law just makes you a better sinner. They took the oppression of the poor. They took the sexual immorality. They wadded them up in one big ball and figured out how to make it better idolatry. They laid themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They're literally leveraging idolatry. In Exodus chapter, what's this deal about laying down on a cloak taken in pledge? Okay, Maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Here's the background. It's Exodus chapter 22, verse 26 through 27. Now you've got to remember, we're spoiled. Right? Our flesh is pretty pink. We don't get out in the sun a lot. we got the air conditioners, you know. we got like seven air conditioners in this place. One of the seven goes down and we think we're all dying. Right? We're spoiled. Right? I am. Right? I'm spoiled. Okay, man, these people were living in tents in the desert of Sinai. Boilerplate during the day frees you to death at night. One of the only possessions they had was their cloak. It was kind of a big deal. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, let's say, for instance that you've got an ox and your neighbor needs to borrow it to plow a field today and he lends you his cloak so you lend him his ox and that's kind of earnest money like if you want to fill up at the gas station and the credit card slide outside don't work and you end up having to you know leave your ID with the guy at the cash register so you can go fill up so he knows you'll come back if you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge you shall return it to him before the sun goes down Okay, there's what God loves and what he hates would be you not doing that. Why? For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? Now, me and you, our kids, they leave jackets, they leave boots, they leave Bibles scattered all over half the county, right? We go pick them up out there at the picnic table before they get rained on, stack them in here on the table. They, get, they disappear the next week, you know, somebody figures it out, right? Man, these people were not in that position. Man, you had a cloak, and you needed it. And so here's the Lord in his character saying, look, you all should have zero. He should have zero, you should have zero. Because of my goodness, you all have a cloak. And so if you take that and pledge for the day, just like he doesn't deserve it and you don't deserve it, you make sure at the end of the day he gets it back. Why? Because it came from me and not from you. That's why. So here you have men. Not only are they taking other men's cloak in pledge for something, and let's face it, if you're having to give somebody the coat off of your back in pledge for the day, it's probably some pretty dire straits. And so here they are. They're taking these coats in pledge, but when evening comes around, they're not going and giving them back. Instead, they're using them for something else. They're using them so they'll have something to spread down on the ground when they go and participate in all of this pagan fertility worship. The oppression of the poor. I will take from you and oppress you and not return. And I will use what I have taken in order to go over here and to indulge my sexual immorality in the worship of false gods. And when you put it like that, all of a sudden it seems like more than a seems like a little bit bigger deal than just, you know, keeping a guy's members only jacket for the evening. This is the manner in which Israel's heart is being manifest. 
This is the way it's showing itself. And yet, even in the midst of their faithlessness and their turning away from him and using all of his things to tell lies about him, even in the midst of this, God has continuously shown himself to be exact opposite. While they are being faithless, God has been being faithful. And so, in Amos chapter 2, verse 9, Yet it was I. Man, I love that statement. Hold on to it. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? So here you have Israel in all of their unfaithfulness telling lies about God. And here you have God saying, yet it was I that was being faithful. While you were telling lies, I was proclaiming truth. While you were lying about my character, I was displaying my character in fullness for all to see in the very midst of their madness. In Amos chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11, we see a reminder of reality. We see a reminder of the truth. He says, yet it was I that delivered you from Egypt. Water to blood, that was me. 100 pound hailstones, that was me. Darkness, that was me. Flies and frogs, that was me. The death of the firstborn, that the proudest man on the planet might break before you, that you may be free, that was me. Pillar of cloud by day to keep the sun off of you so you didn't boil and die of exposure, that was me. Pillar of fire by night so that you didn't freeze to death in the desert, that was me. Splitting of the Red Sea that you may cross safely while Pharaoh and his armies drowned, that was me. Water from the rock, manna from heaven, clothes that didn't wear out. All of that was me being faithful to you. And what about the Amorites? Man, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 21 through 30, man, you see these guys, and I was going to read it. I'm going to skip it this morning because we still got a ways to go and I want to be able to get there. But you can read it in your own time. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 21 through 30, you've got a bunch of people that are newly emancipated slaves. You know what these people know about? They know about making bricks. They know about Egyptian taskmasters. They know a little bit about living out in the desert on manna. What they don't know anything about is swinging a sword. And yet, when they come upon these warrior tribes in the Transjordan region, the Lord goes before them. He says, you have no ability to deal with the Amorites. And so I'll go before you. And I will drive them out. And you will have victory because of me. Now by the time you get to Amos, and they've been in the land for centuries, perhaps the stories of Egypt have become an idle tale to them. But friends, they are still living on the same dirt that God gave them from the Amorites. 
You can't blow that one off. You can't pretend like you don't know. He says, you have been faithless the whole time. I have been faithful. Even in the midst of their faithlessness, the Lord was keeping them in a land in faithfulness that He had given them. Even in the midst of their faithlessness, He was raising up prophets. He was raising up Nazarites that were telling them the truth. And what did they do with the faithfulness that He showed them? They responded in nothing but unfaithfulness. It's why Luke would record that Jesus would later say in chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When the Lord says they did this and this and this for three indictments and for four, I will not revoke. They oppressed my people. There is no justice in the gates. Their sexual immorality is rampant and they love to take the two and bundle them together just to wave it in my face as they chased after some demon God. Even in the midst of that, I was seeing them prophets that were telling them the truth. I was seeing them Nazarites that displayed to them what it looked like. They were living on ground that I had been faithful, yet it was I. Yet it was I. They did this, but yet it was I. And yet it was I. There is an indictment against the people. That while God had continuously showed him his truth and his good, they had continually used it to rebel against him and therefore judgment falls. You made the Nazarites to drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves is pressed down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Or shall he who rides the horse save his life? And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you're in a fight for your life, but no matter how hard you swung, it was like a balloon? Tunk. Man, you wake up from those... Ladies, I don't know if you have those kind of dreams or not. Dudes have those kind of dreams. You wake up from those and you think, whew, thank goodness it was just a dream. Friends, there ain't no waking up from this one. The strong strength doesn't matter. The speed of the swift is slow. They're stripped naked and destroyed. Everything that they put their confidence in, everything that they put their hope in, fails them. In the hour of a holy God's judgment, the, roar, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. What happens? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that what happens is it all happens. Sennacherib and the Assyrian horde gut Israel like a fish and commit some of the greatest wartime atrocities that have ever been committed in human history. 
You know, I don't think I don't think I need to do a lot here. I think that anybody who the Lord gave the gray matter between their ears doesn't have to search very hard to see the parallels that exist between then and now. Not in the geography, not even necessarily in in the particular culture, but in the heart of men that is always the same. The fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve that were born in his image, not in the image of the God that created them. A heart that is deceitful and wicked above all things and in the madness of sin will replace the truth that is right in front of you with a lie of your own making because you think it's preferable to reality. Talking about some of these things this week, I had somebody say to me, I I don't see how the Lord can keep from bringing judgment. He's a righteous God. They weren't asking the question, can he keep from it? They were making the statement, I don't see how he can keep from bringing judgment upon us soon. He is a righteous God, and we are doing some very unrighteous things as a nation, not just as individuals, but as, as, as a culture. My answer to that was, it's not simply that judgment is coming, friends. I fully believe it has arrived. I mean, look, if you want to talk about the things that are spoken of specifically here, the reality of sin is that if you give it an inch, it will take a mile. And what just a few years ago was a demand for tolerance for sexual depravity in this nation has been replaced with a demand for a celebration of the most depraved things that a mind can think of. Hey, listen, guys, I cut the, I cut, and I'm not talking about my description. I'm talking about, I just cut part of what I was going to read out of Ezekiel short because I wasn't sure how many kids we'd have in here today. And buddy, they ain't got nothing on us. We're using the very thing that is the testimony of God in in men. We're using it to lie about who he really is. Man, scripture tells us male and female, he created them in his own image. Friends, let me tell you something. The last time a man had a female side was right before God took the rib out of Adam and made Eve out of it. But friends, they were both made in his image. Male and female, he created them in his own image. And yet here is man in his rebellion, not satisfied with the image of himself that God has chosen to put in us. This is not something... Guys, this is, this is not something that's happening in, in like New York City or, or in San Francisco or in Portland or in Denver or in Dallas or in Memphis or even in Little Rock. This stuff is in our own backyard. Man, there are churches in Greenwood, Arkansas that are openly promoting and celebrating the condemnation of Romans chapter 1. 
Friends, if the message is, hey, everybody's welcome, and by that we mean everybody is welcome to come and hear the gospel and perhaps repent and believe and be saved, then amen, everybody is welcome. But if by that we mean we're going to celebrate the fact that you are taking God's stuff and shoving it in His face, then you can expect judgment to ensue. And hey, look, you just can't point your fingers at, at, you know, well, I know it's in Greenwood, but at least it's not us, right? Look, man, Guidepost, who is a logistics firm that has often been associated with Christian causes, just here a couple of weeks ago for Pride Month, put out a big old social media campaign about how that they were just, just trying to bring as much inclusive inclusivity and acceptance and affirmation to all of this alphabet soup kind of stuff that they could possibly do. You know what the Southern Baptist Convention's response to that was? This was in the middle of the convention, by the way. You know what the Southern Baptist Convention's response to Guidepost Logistics saying we are all for a sexually depraved agenda? You know what their response was? You think they censured them? No, we hired them. We hired them in order to investigate allegations of sexual immorality in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, I don't know how you can take somebody that is openly championing depravity that brings judgment and use them as the people who's going to investigate alleged depravity. You can't just point your fingers at what happens across the street. It's not just that. We got Saddleback Baptist Church celebrating the fact, I mean, they're just blowing up as hard as they can that they're ordaining women pastors and we can't even get a vote from the floor to form a committee to even consider whether or not we ought to allow that. It's not just the SBC. It goes to the very depth of the hearts of men. Man, I, like I told you last week, I praise the Lord for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Man, I, like I said, I've been arguing that since I was literally in elementary school and I never honestly thought I would see it. I didn't. I thought it was there and it was not going. Praise the Lord, man. Praise the Lord. And yet, legalism is not the answer. Man, this stuff does, it's not, it's not based on, what's happening here is, is, is not that you become righteous or unrighteous based off what you do. It's what's in your heart that causes you what to do. It just shows you're unrighteous. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, that when the law came, it caused transgression to increase. If you know the difference between sin and transgression, Sin is anything that is opposed to the will of God. Transgression is the breaking of a specific rule. And so here you have the will of God, and anything that's opposed to it is sin. But if you're going to have transgression, you've got to have a law that says do this or don't do that. Now you can have a transgression, which means if you have God who is eternally holy and His standard never changes, sin has always existed as long as anyone is opposed to Him. But when the law comes and codifies to you and says, okay, this is what God's character looks like as it pertains to lying. And here's what His character looks like as it pertains to lust. 
And here's what his character looks like as it pertains to finance and all of these things. Now we go out and if our heart hasn't changed, we operate in the same way. All of a sudden we become a transgressor of the law. It can clearly be seen what the heart is. When the law increases, so does the trespass. Guys, I am thrilled that Roe versus Way was overturned. It is the grace of God, but I'm here to tell you what it's going to do. It's going to show the heart of this nation more clearly than it has been shown in the last 50 years. You're going to start seeing what was underneath the surface. And it's already happening. And it's not happening in San Francisco. Well, it is. It's happening in your backyard. We are not isolated. We can't sit around and go, well, thank goodness it's not us here in the buckle of the Bible belt. We'll let judgment fall on everybody else. That is not how it works. Read your Old Testament. Friends, Fort Smith, Arkansas, Garrison Avenue, Monday afternoon. Bunch of ladies out there, I guess we can call them that, bunch of women out there holding signs and protesting the fact that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Most of them have got what you would expect, something like, um, you know, my body, my choice, or if abortion's not safe, then neither are you, which I don't understand how that's not terroristic threatening. You would think it should be all that kind of stuff. In their midst, not just one or two, but a bunch that said, if God can kill his son, so can I. Now, friends, that's the heart on display. That's not politics. That's not a plank on a platform. That is the heart of a depraved human being on display that is going to fall under the awful judgment of a holy God. And you and I were once that. And praise the Lord, He snatched us out of the fire. Now, if you take that mindset and you go back to what He said about slaves, He said, you don't sell your brothers into slavery. I bought them to bring them out. So you act accordingly. Friends, if that's what we once were, then what we have is a mandate to do everything we can to put the gospel of Jesus in front of these people. But now, hey, I'm all for it, man. I'm all for, look, man, get the right justices on the court, do all that stuff. You know me, I'm down. But guys, that's not our mandate. The mandate is to see their heart changed. Now look, if you give them the gospel like it really is, they're going to hate you for it. Because the gospel like it really is says this is you, and by golly, the fire of hell is going to fall. So run. And run to Christ. Run to Christ that you may be saved. For in the phrase, yet it was I, is more than indictment. Let's go back there. I'm almost done. Amos chapter 2. He lists all of their sins, the oppression of the weak and the poor, grinding them into the dust and their sexual immorality that tells a lie about God's character and then taking all of that depravity and figuring out how to engineer it into something even better and use it for demon worship and all these things. And then he speaks about his own faithfulness in the midst of their unfaithfulness and he said, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. 
I who destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It was I who raised up prophets in your midst. It was I who brought you Nazarites to give you an example of what my holiness looks like. Even though you went astray, yet it was I. In that statement is both indictment and hope. It's not one or the other. And if you try to chop this thing up and make it only one or the other because you like more one than you like the other, then you are proclaiming the truth of God as a lie. So if you're just really angry with the just disgusting agenda of depravity that is around us, and so you want to cut the hope out of there because, man, you want to hammer them, you are out of line. And if you think for a minute because it makes you uncomfortable to hurt people's feelings and that that you get more flies with sugar than you do with vinegar, that you can cut the indictment out and just go with the hope part... You're lying to them. It's both. When he says, yet it was I, it is indictment. And it is hope. Because even while they were doing this in unfaithfulness, he was remaining faithful to his own character, to his own truth, to his own word. These people didn't used to be this way. Now you got to remember, Amos is writing to a nation, not an individual. So when you look at these people that are depraved and acting this way, they have always been depraved and acting that way. The only hope they have is that they become something new, a new creation, and are no longer that way. But as far as them as individuals go, at this snapshot here two years before the earthquake, all the people that are currently being this way have always been that way. But he's not just writing to them as individuals. He's writing to a nation, a nation that exists across time and across generations. And as a nation, they've not always been this way. As a matter of fact, there was a pretty good period of time where they weren't this way to this degree at all. And there were some things that made that time different. These people used to be different when it wasn't the Lord that was having to remind them, yet it was I. They didn't need to be reminded because they already knew it was him. There was a time when they didn't have to be reminded what he did for them because they remembered what he did for them. If you went to camp, we did Joshua. Joshua is leading the people into the land. After the death of Moses, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and the generation that departed uh, from the Lord at Sinai, after they had all died off except for Joshua and Caleb, who was a different spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of Jesus Christ, as, as they are getting ready to lead them into the land. There are a couple of tribes that have land that has been given to them to possess that is on the east side of the Jordan 
And so when they're coming to the Jordan to cross into the land, these are called the Transjordan tribes. It's where modern-day Jordan is today. And so they come out of the wilderness, and they come into this land, and that is the first thing they run across. And so it's the first thing they conquer. It's the first thing they settle. And then they get to the Jordan River, and you guys know the narrative. The water piles up like stones before the Lord and the Ark of His Covenant. The people go across, and Jericho falls to a shout of victory. And city by city, they begin in the faithfulness of God to take the land that was promised to them. And as they were getting ready to cross the Jordan, Joshua looked at the leaders of the tribes that had land on the west side and they said, Look, it's not right that all of your brothers should come with you to fight for your land and then have you stay here on this side of the Jordan while we all go over and continue to fight. They fought for your land. You need to go help fight for theirs. And they all said, yep, that's right. This is good. They helped us take our land. We're going to go with them and help take theirs. And Joshua said, yeah, and when the fighting's done, they said, you leave your little ones, leave your women and children over here where they're safe, and when the fighting's done, I'll send you back. And so that's exactly what happened. In faithfulness, they crossed the Jordan with the people of Israel, and they fought, sometimes as frontline troops, because they didn't have their wives and children. They fought. They fought for their brothers. They fought under the same promise of the same God that led them all out of Egypt together, from slaves to free men. And then the time came for them to go back. And in Joshua chapter 22, verse 9, something incredible happens. Joshua 22 and verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead to their own land, which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they had came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And And when the people of Israel heard it, they said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Cana in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. All right, you understand where these people are coming from. They're the generation that lived. They're the generation that was young enough, they did not bow the knee to the calf at Sinai. They saw their parents waste away and die untimely deaths before their eyes. They know where their strength comes from. They saw Jericho fall when the people were faithful. They saw the water stack up like stones. They saw what happens when you go up to little podunk AI and have sin in your camp and get destroyed for it. They understand where their power comes from more clearly than at any other point in their history. And these men go back and they build this altar and everybody in Israel is like, whoa, the Lord has said that his worship will not occur anywhere except for before the Ark of the Covenant of the presence of the Lord. What do these guys think they're doing? They don't get to do this. They don't get to have it their way. It's kind of looking to them like what is eventually going to happen with Jeroboam the first. What are you boys doing? 
We know it's a long way to come from the Transjordan to Shiloh. We know you've got to cross the river. We know that that is precarious, certainly in the harvest time of the year, but that's just tough. That's the way life is. You're going to have to do it. You don't get to remake God on your terms, and we'll go to war with you over it. Why? Because we know we're being judged as a nation. Not as individuals. These men are going to confess. They're going to like, look, man, we've been there, done that. Achan was one dude. He got thousands of us killed because of his sin. We're not going to let you drag us down with you, man. If the Lord says nobody worships except for before the ark, then by golly, it's going to be nobody worships except for before the ark. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one of each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them a head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which we even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession from among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the manner of devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish alone for his iniquity? And once again, I would point out to you indictment and hope in the heart and mind of the ten tribes of Israel. They, now, they're mistaken. We're going to get there in a minute. But they're righteously mistaken. And they see this altar and they're like, this is a bad deal. Man, we've seen how this deal goes. Israel is going to rise or stand as a nation. She'll, she'll, she'll either rise or go down altogether, and we do not want you pulling us down. But, hey, there's hope in this. There's the indictment. What do you think you're doing? Man, you can't erect for yourself an altar apart from the altar that is before the Lord. But look, if this isn't satisfactory to you, here's your hope, you can come take from our land. We're not abandoned. You can come take from our land. You come over here and take some land from among us. Yes, it's ours, but we would rather have you do that and remain faithful to God than have our stuff. And then in verse 21, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No. But we did it from fear that in a time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, and people of Reuben and the people of Gad. 
You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in a time to come, we should say, Behold the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. There was a day when these people didn't have to be reminded that yet it was the Lord because they already knew it. And they knew the danger of what forgetting would bring. And so, man, they built them an altar, a big one, setting just across the river. They didn't build it on their side of the river. They built it on the ten tribes' side of the river, to the place to which they had crossed, to the land in which set the tabernacle of the Lord, like a gigantic signpost that says, worship and sacrifice is that way. You want to worship? Follow the big altar. That way. Lest our children forget or your children forget. And tell ours they don't have any part in this. Like we know this very day that we do. Let it stand as witness. They didn't have to be reminded that yet it was the Lord. They knew it was and they were worried that one day they would forget. You see, they had been in Egypt for 400 years, but they hadn't been enslaved the whole time. Near the end, there arose a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. They knew it could happen. It had happened before. It must not happen again. Their efforts and their generation worked. The efforts of future generations would fail. But there is power in remembering God's faithfulness. You know, what do you do about this, man? What you do is you remember his faithfulness and you call others to remembrance as well. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Guys, there is, I could quote you. Like, we we could be here for another hour just looking at the themes of remembrance that we see in Scripture. Buddy, Samuel setting it up. Ebenezer, buddy, the Lord has been with us thus far. Don't forget it. If you do, go look at it. The tribes of Israel stacking up stones in the middle of a Jordan. 
as a wall of water imposingly builds itself behind them trillions of gallons tall. Here at the Jordan, in the law, teach this to your kids. Make them remember. Make them remember. My third and fourth grade class is beginning to tire of me running them through the paces on the books of the Bible. They say, well, why do we keep doing this stuff? I said, because when we leave it for a couple weeks and then go back to it, you don't remember it anymore. And I don't care if you learn it, if you can't retain it. You have to remember it. And you put this on their heart. You put it in their mind. Guys, we have to be honest with ourselves. One of the reasons that we find ourselves in the position in this country today is because we have not done a good job of ingraining that remembrance into our generations You know that in Israel, the king was required under the law when he ascended to the throne and came in to his reign, he was required to make a hand copy of the law. All of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, he was required to make a copy of that in his own hand that was in turn approved by the Levitical priest, which is a crazy hard hoop to jump through. It literally can't have an ink spot out of place. In order that he might read it, it says every day of his life, and in doing so, have his heart transformed so it is not lifted up above his brother's. It's Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18 through 20. In remembrance, there is power, yet it was I, says the Lord. You want to know the direct application? John Weisenhunt, the deal, what does this mean to me today? Go home. Tell your kids about his faithfulness. You say, man, we talk about the Lord in my house all the time. Amen, I know. Go home, tell your kids about his faithfulness. Tell your kids about his faithfulness to these people. Tell your kids specifically about his faithfulness to you. Can your kids, can they they tell me your story of salvation? Hey, listen, I know you're saved. And guess what? Your kids know you're saved too. But have you ever given them your testimony, like personally and sufficiently enough times because they remember for a minute, but they don't retain. It's their nature. You, you know, repetition, right, is the mother of learning. Can, can your kids tell me how, how dad was saved? Or do they just know that he is? Can, can they tell me how mom was saved? Maybe the struggles that you went through and what, you, what it was like dealing with your own sin and what conviction was like? Let's give them something to remember. Let's give them the Ebenezer. Let's give them the Lord has been with us thus far. Yeah, we built this thing. What are you going to use it for? One thing. You're not going to sacrifice on it? Nope. Not going to make burnt offerings on it? Nope. Not going to make peace offerings on it? for Nope. Why do you build an altar that big if you're not going to offer anything on it? So we'll remember bear witness between us that the Lord has brought us together into this thing. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see what is often been referred to as the hall of faith. That's a good name. It's an accurate name. I think another good and accurate name would be the hall of faithfulness. 
Because what you see here is not simply men and women that in the call of God are being faithful. You're also seeing a faithful God displaying his faithfulness to them. And this is a big deal because, as we've noted before, faith is not magic. Faith is not creative. Faith doesn't make things real that aren't real. As a matter of fact, putting your faith in something that isn't true, at the very least, is ignorance and most likely foolishness. That is why, at the very beginning of this chapter, in in chapter 11, um, in verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Faith in a lie does not make the lie true. In order to, for faith to be beneficial... That faith must be based in a true reality. And so, if the faith that is saving faith, if the faith that all of these people displayed in Hebrews chapter 11 is going to be of the benefit to them that is described, then it requires the underlying reality that God rewards those who seek him. And if God is not faithful in doing that, then there's no point in faith. Which is why he constantly says from one end of scripture to the other, I am faithful, I am faithful, I am faithful. I am faithful. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his character. He's faithful to his promise. He's faithful to his people. And because of his faithfulness, then we can come in the assurance of faith and do some things that no sensible person would otherwise do. The kind of things that are listed in chapter 11, verse 29 where it says, by faith the people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. But I would add, and yet it was God. The Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And yet it was God. And by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days, and yet it was God. And by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies, but yet it was God. 
What more shall I say? For time could fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and yet it was God. And enforced justice and yet it was God. And obtained the promises and yet it was God. And stopped the mouth of lions and yet it was God. And quenched the power of fire and yet it was God. And escaped the edge of the sword and yet it was God. And made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put armies to flight and yet it was God. Women received back their dead by the resurrection and yet it was God. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life and yet it was God. Others suffered mockery and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, but yet it was God. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. And yes, even then it was God of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and the caves of the earth. And yet it was God. And as though to prove... That refrain over and over, the author finishes up this way and says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. When the standard of a righteous God is removed from the midst of the people, wickedness will increase. Judgment will fall. The Lord's faithfulness to his people in the midst of this is certainly an indictment against a nation for not returning to him. It is also the hope by which perhaps we might. For even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of rebellion, he is faithful. He is faithful to his justice. He is faithful to his grace. Remember. Fan remembrance into flame in others. Remember. And when he roars from Zion, come trembling. Come for salvation. Come for sanctification. Come for edification. Come for refuge. Let's pray. Lord, we consider your things and they are, they are hard and they are glorious. And they are frightening and they are wonderful. And Lord, we pray that we would remember. We would remember what you have done for the generations of your people. Lord, we would remember what you have done for us. And in doing so, Lord, that we would seek and fear your name. Lord, we ask it for the salvation of the lost and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.